thank you for this time to gather together. Thank you for these dear saints gathered together here, that we sit around your word, not because we want to be smart, not because we want to be better than anybody else, but because we want to worship you. We want to know who you are. So we sing because we offer praises to you, because we acknowledge what has happened to us by your divine grace. And we study your word because we love you and because you have loved us first. And we desire to know more about you. We desire to be more like Christ and less like our sinful selves and like the world. So we ask that you would use this time to build into our sanctification and that it would be right, true, and good worship that is acceptable to you. And we pray this all through your resurrected Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Well, this evening, we are actually going to take a step out of the catechism because my wife has been sick all week long. And I got to thinking about another text while sitting around at home changing diapers and feeding raging babies. Not just one raging baby. Uh, and really, I mean, it would have been a good week to step out anyways because of everything just going on. I mean, I mentioned it this morning. I mean, this if you watch the news, you need depression medicine. I mean, it just, we're just getting beat to a pulp. I mean, there's, what else is there to put your hope in? The United States? Foreign policy? Other governments? Uh, medical care? The CDC? The same, the same group that says that we have this crazy disease is saying you've got to use people's preferred pronouns. I mean, we, we're living in total anarchy. And then you look around the world, that it's, I mean, when I pray with my kids, it's like there's things that are happening. Like there's 7.2 Richter scale earthquakes in Haiti. There's massive hurricanes, category three or four, whatever it is in the Gulf, and then you have people doing horrible stuff in Afghanistan and in Nigeria and all around us. So what is going on? So we're going to go to Luke 13 tonight. Luke 13, verses 1 through 5. Just because I don't think we, we get this text taught, and it's something about Jesus that this is not, the, nobody writes songs about Luke 13, 1 through 5. And, and, and nobody's like, hey, preach this at my funeral, please. This is, not, this is not that text, because it just doesn't sound like the Jesus that we've constructed. Nevertheless, this is the Jesus who is real. This is the Jesus you can't ignore. So I'm going to read these verses, and then we'll, we'll simply go through it and just think about these things. There were some present at that very time. So this very time, we're just jumping in the middle of Luke, but at this time, there's some present who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So this is Jesus counseling this group. They come to him and they say, Jesus, did you hear about what Pilate did? There's those folks up in Galilee. And you know what he did? He killed them and he mixed their blood with the bloods of sacrifice. I mean, he just killed them on the temple and put their blood all together with blood of sacrifices. So it's desecrating the temple. It's making a mockery of worship. It's, it's wrongful murder from the government. Did you hear about this, Jesus? And the implication being like, 
I wonder what they did. Jesus, can you tell us why they were so bad that that happened to them? But what does he say? He answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Do you think because something bad happened to them like this, that it made them, because they were in, just inherently worse than everybody else? No, is the answer. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, I did one counseling class in seminary, and this was not what they told us to do. When somebody comes to you and says, I have, I've experienced some tragedy, or I've observed some national horrible thing, what they don't tell you to do is say, well, the same thing's going to happen to you unless you repent. <laughs> that, that just is not what they teach, but nevertheless, isn't this what Jesus says? And then, and then what does he do further? He goes, hey, also, did you guys remember when that tower fell in Siloam? 18 people just happened to be walking by, or maybe they were camped out underneath or having a picnic, or they were setting up shop for their business or whatever it was, and the tower poorly constructed, not up to code. Ron's dealing with that right now, with the code with the city of McKinney. And it just falls over and kills them all. Do you think that they were worse sinners than everybody else in Jerusalem? No, but you will likewise perish unless you repent. He brings up another tragedy. So one that just happens, that, that looks like an accident to us, the tower falling over, and then one that's perpetrated by people in authority. So injustice and tragedy. And Jesus says the same thing about both of them. You will all likewise perish unless you repent. Is this good counseling? I mean, is this, is this what we think that Jesus should say and do? And then the reason this text came to mind is because that's what we're living with. We got our tower of Siloam falling uh, with the hurricane out in the cold. Is somebody coming in? We have, we have a closed-door policy. If you ain't here on time, sorry. No, it's Reuben. He can come in. Um, but we have our own tower of Siloam, right? The, uh, something that looks like an accident. just looks like you know, a, just a freak thing that nobody's really responsible for as far as we understand human beings with the hurricane and then with the earthquake in both in the Gulf. Then we have something perpetrated by wicked governments that we can see everywhere in Nigeria and Afghanistan in our own country. People being affected by it. And then we, we are like these, some who were present at that very time, come to Jesus and say, Jesus, did you know about this? And so what's the counsel that he gives? So we got to look at three things, three points on this sermon, because that's just the Baptist way, and sometimes you can't shake it. You got to have three points. Everyone's got to be a three-pointer otherwise. And a poem? Oof, I don't have any poems. I can't remember the last time I read a poem. I'm not very educated. The first thing, Jesus doesn't stop all pain and injustice. Because you think about it, these folks come to him, did you know Jesus? He goes, yeah, but did you all know about the tower? Yeah, I knew about what happened with Pilate. Did you know about that? He doesn't stop all pain and injustice, and they're bringing it to him. And we don't know anything about these people. Like, were they followers? Were they disciples? Were, were it the 12 disciples? Who were they? Were they just inquirers? Were they Pharisees? They're still coming. Did you know? And he, of course he knew, but he didn't stop it. He knew about the Pilate incident and the tower incident. He stopped neither. And it brings to mind to me a verse in Ecclesiastes 7.14. We're going to talk about Ecclesiastes a good bit tonight. Ecclesiastes 7.14, where the writer, the Koheleth, the preacher, probably Solomon, 
He says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. For God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Look at that. This is, this is a kind of a repeated frame or a concept in the book of Ecclesiastes. You won't find out what comes after him, meaning like you're going to die and you don't know how it all fits together. You don't know the purpose behind it. But you do know that there are days of adversity and there are days of prosperity. I'm to joy in the prosperity, but I'm to consider an adversity. That God's made both. And I don't know why. So we come to humility that God has made both. I don't know why. But we're to consider and to think about the creation of God. Let me show you some other verses along these lines. Amos 3.6, where the prophet Amos is dealing with uh, a good bit of the, the mankind-inflicted tragedy in verse chapter 3, verse 6. It says, Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Can this disaster be happening here where we are unless God's done it? Has he done it? Is he sovereign over all of these things? Similarly, another prophet, Isaiah 45, verse 7. He says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now, you don't see that on coffee mugs at Hobby Lobby. <laughs> and they don't put that on the banners and the wall art in Hobby Lobby. That's always 50% off. But, but it's right out of the scripture. I am the Lord who does all these things. I do these things. In Proverbs 16, 4, a last verse to kind of to look at these, this one, this first point. Jesus doesn't stop all pain and injustice. He says, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So if he doesn't stop it, and, and then he has a purpose for it, has made everything for its purpose. And on the Hebrew word for everything means everything. Just in case you I looked that up. It means everything. <laughs> everything has its purpose. Even the wicked, even the wicked, even the Taliban for the day of trouble. Even Boko Haram for the day of trouble. That they are not outside the sovereignty of God. So then what is the point or what does it all fit? What is the purpose how does God use injustice and tragedy? The purpose of it, going back to Luke 13, we build a biblical case, all those Old Testament passages, and then Jesus comes to these moments, these real-life moments of people who are really seeing this. Government. Pilate just slaughters these Galileans and just pours their blood all over the temple. He doesn't care. And nothing happens to him. He's in charge. And then the tower that falls purpose of it. Jesus says the same thing in verse 3 and verse 5 in Luke 13. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Can that really be the message of injustice and tragedy is repent or perish? Can that really be the message? Seems to be like that's what Jesus is saying the message is. That all tragedy is meant to, to drive us to consider eternity. I do weddings and funerals here and there. Less so now, but I did a bunch of them. You know what I'd rather do between weddings and funerals? Take a guess. Funerals. 
I'd do 100 funerals before I did one wedding. Weddings are a nightmare because everybody's got an opinion. They care about like what color buttons are on your shirt. And they're like, I'm the preacher, come on. They want, hey, make it short. We want it like this. We want the gospel like that. We you know, shape it like this, do these things. Sit here, do that, do that. People are arguing and fighting. They're bickering in the back. But at a funeral, they're just, thank you so much for coming. I get no notes. I go and ask the family, tell me about the, the individual if I don't know them. And then they just say, get up there and preach. And everybody's locked on. Nobody's waiting to go to the party afterwards. Nobody's looking for anything else. I'll preach. I've preached funeral for people I don't even know. And I always say yes. I've never said no. Because this, this is what the tragedies do. They open you to consider, I am going to die. The, or the person that, that I have in my life that I lean on and that holds me up, or at least I feel like they do, they are going to die. And now they're thinking, well, what's going to happen when I'm in that box and I preach to some pretty angry faces because I won't say, oh, yeah, old Bill, he's up there fishing with St. Peter and, you know, knocking back a cold one because that person wasn't a believer. And I can't preach them out of the casket into heaven. But I can preach to these people that are here. So that's what Jesus is saying. He's not talking about, hey, we're going to march on Pilate's palace. We're going to demand justice. That's what we're going to do. He talks to the people who are actually there. He can't do anything, figurative, as a, as a human, for those people who were wrongfully executed. But I can do something for you who are listening to me right now, Jesus says. Repent or perish is the message. We're always in desperate need of being weaned off of this world, aren't we not? We love it. We, 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 we love everything about it at times. And it's understandable to an extent, right? I mean, so, so in Ecclesiastes, just follow along with me. You don't have to put these up there, Barbara. I'm gonna, we're going we're gonna to weave through here. But Ecclesiastes, I don't know if you, have you ever read Ecclesiastes and been like, man, this is the biggest bummer in the Bible. <laughs> vanity of vanities, all is vanity. I mean, what are we talking about here? This is, ugh. like, you don't preach this at graduations for Christian schools, for sure. You say, go and conquer. You don't say, that's all vanity. But there's actually a thread that goes through the whole book of Ecclesiastes about joy, appreciation for what God has given you here and now. It starts in chapter 2. We're, I'm just going to follow this thread, so just you're going get, to get tired hands, so just flip with me. In chapter 2, verse 24 through 26, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in all his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to have the one who pleases God, only to give it to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. Ecclesiastes 3.12. I perceive that there is nothing better than for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat, drink, and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. 3.22, I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? 5.18, behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one has toils under the sun. 
the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. And then chapter 8, verse 15. And I commend joy for man who has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And then lastly, 9, 7, 8, 9. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. That means always be in celebration mode. Verse 9, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. So in the book about depression, in the book about pain, you can follow this thread that weaves through of joy, enjoy, rejoice, be joyful over and over and over again. And we often miss it because it's so overwhelmingly not that. Somebody described it like Proverbs is like getting in the ring and boxing with gloves and the protective headgear and stuff. But Ecclesiastes is like a back alley street brawl with brass knuckles. It's just a little more blunt. <laughs> but it still has this joy. So we, God has given us blessings to enjoy here on this earth. The trouble comes, as Jesus is addressing in Luke 13, the trouble comes when we have an inordinate attachment, love, and obsession for the world. Because these people are coming to Jesus in Luke 13, and their point is not like, hey, instruct us upon the ways of heaven. It's, hey, what are you going to do about this? Fix it. Fix this here and now. And Jesus is, he doesn't even address the here and now. He doesn't even address the pain that they're feeling. He just says, look at that and then look at yourself. Repent or else you likewise will perish. Because the trouble comes is when we have an inordinate love for this world. So Colossians 3, 1 through 4 tells us, set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. Set your mind on things above, verse 2 says, not on the things that are of the earth, for you have died. So, so why should I set my mind on things above instead of things that are of this earth? Verse 3 gives a reason. Because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's the reason. You are Christ's. That's why you take your eyes off of this and put it on up there, because that's where you are. We're in Christ. We're, we're in, have union with Christ. And, and we read that and we go, yeah, that's good. Man, that's great. That's a good way to live. It's a good way to think about it. But it's not just good. It's vital. Because here's the other side of this coin. So this is the, hey, do this. And then we're going to read two passages like, here's the, don't do this. This is what's really going on. 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I mean, can we let that hit for a minute? Whoever, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's not like saying, oh, contradicting John 3.16 because God so loved the world. <laughs> we have to admit that 
the world the word world is used in many different ways when John writes it, right? Is he talking about the actual globe? Is he talking about the system of evil? Is he talking about all the ethnicities? There's lots of senses of it, but this is talking about the, the system of the world, the things that are here, be they sinful or just be they temporal. If anyone loves those things, the love of the Father is not in him. If that's your greatest love, is all the things that you can see or the wish the things you wish you could go and see or have or whatever, the love of the Father is not in you. This is, this is problematic. And then James 4, he gets even heavier in verse 4. So John, who is the beloved disciple of Jesus, James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, he says, you adulterous people. Look how the title of this sermon. You adulterous people. I mean, this is, he's writing this letter to a church. These are people that he knows. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever makes, wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So it's not just a good idea to set your mind on things above and not on things below. You are avoiding enmity with God. Because if you love this world, you're the enemy of God. And he says, you adulterous people. He's not just saying, hey, you who commit adultery. He's saying, you are spiritually adulterous people. That's what he keeps calling Israel, right, throughout the whole Old Testament. Every time they stray after Baal or Ashtaroth or Molech or whatever that idolatry is that they adopt, he calls it spiritual adultery. He refused to do it as a wayward bride. See also the book of Hosea. This is a, this is a real thing. That tragedy, injustice, pain, difficulty in this life is great. It's great. Because it's, it's loosening your grip on this that otherwise you would hold on to. It's grace. It's, it's snapping us out of the love of this life. There's a right way to do it that we saw in Ecclesiastes. And we can be thankful. We shouldn't be like, oh, I hate the running water in my house. Or, man, I, I'm not going to the doctor because I don't want to love this world. I need to suffer. I need to feel God punish me. And that's, that's kind of this trend in uh, birthing right now. No medicine, no nothing. I need to really feel Genesis 3. Like what? Well, then do you do that when you get cancer? No, you go to the doctor. <laughs> do you do that when you have indigestion? No, you go and take a pill and get rid of it, like with heartburn. So that's not, the, the point is not to live a uh, seeking painful life because I'm, I'm trying to distance myself. But there is this reality of snapping us out of the hypnosis of this world. Because we get to thinking, this is all there is. And, and nobody in the church, I would say, thinks that. They would say that this is all there is. But they view heaven being the presence of God as a consolation prize. Right, so it, it, it kind of goes like this. I, everybody's got to die, and there's only two options, hell or heaven. So, I, of course, of the two, I want heaven. But I live as if I don't believe that it's actually any better than here. It, it's going to be boring there, but huh, I'd, rather have be, I'd rather be bored than be tormented, so I'll just take that. And one time I heard a sermon preached, pastor asked like how many of you if i offered you heaven right now would even take it would, would even go wow man we got 
Cowboys. So he's back. He's better than ever. Can, we, can I at least watch game one before we go? Yeah. Or every single young man, what does he say better happen before he goes and dies? I better get married, at least as a Christian, because I want to do what that is. This is the best that it's going to be. This is the best that it's ever going to be. You know, we, we live like that. We think like that. We are to long for the celestial city, as Bunyan puts it, in Pilgrim's Progress. And what does Christian leave? He leaves the city of destruction. And it's like at that moment, Christian, the main character, he wakes up and he goes, this city that I live in is, gonna, is doomed. I, I've got to get to the celestial city. So it's worth all the trials and the tribulations of walking through the slough of despond and fighting Apollyon and going through all these difficulties and falling asleep and losing my key that I needed and all of these things because I'm going to end up in the celestial city. And that's where I want to be. That's what I long for more than anything. And then along the way, he gets to see different glimpses from high points on the path. But that's what Jesus is saying to these people. He's like, use this moment. I'm not going to debate on the legality or our recourse through the courts to fix the injustice that Pilate dealt with, that he dealt out. And I'm not going to talk about, like, or let's just go over the, the ins and outs of that tower falling. We better make better construction decisions. And, hey, avoid all danger. Don't ever sit under a tower. It might fall on you. That's not what he says. He says, use this. People who are coming and talking to me, thinking about this. And the last point is, stop living for your best life now. That's, that's what these five verses are about. Stop living for your best life now. That is a not-so-veiled dig at the best-selling book by Joel Osteen, Your Best Life Now. And I heard John MacArthur addressing that book one time. He said, if your best life is now, that means you're going to hell. Because it it's going to be worse there. So this is as good as it's going to get. If this is your best life now, I mean, do we really believe in eternal life? In this moment, what Jesus doesn't do is offer platitudes or, you know, methodologies. Here how you cope with pain. Here's, you know, some prayers to pray, some trinkets to hold on and squeeze, uh, some places to go, some things like that. I mean, I'm not giving you any of those kinds of things. The same will happen to you unless you repent. I mean, he just is blunt about the truth. Learn from them. Repent now while you have the chance. That's the message of tragedy and injustice. Repent now while you have the chance. They want to hear. It would make us feel better if we were these who come to Jesus, these folks, these unnamed people. It would make us feel better if Jesus would just say, well, they had it coming. What you didn't know, what I knew is, is that all those Galileans that, I mean, he should have done that. That was not true justice, but they were all murderers, or they all cheated on their taxes. And all those people that the tower fell on, guess what? That 